Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. Hello and welcome to another episode of the Mark Growth Podcast. This week we got some juicy stuff happening. Juicy, juicy, juicy. So first off, if you didn't see it, I posted on my Instagram two posts that were about the reconnection and reunion of Kylie and I. So that, if you want to go learn more about that, I'm going to have her on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe to the podcast. And, you know, it helps if you give it a five-star review and a written review. I got to sneak that in there, of course. Um, so, yeah, we're going to be jamming together about the breakup in more detail and also about the reunion, how that came to be. Also, I just launched my new app that I co-founded with my good friend Aaron Albert, and we have nine experts on it. It's it's a dream come true. So we wanted to create like the you know the Peloton slash Netflix of emotional well wellness of emotional health. You know, so instead of a social network, you can think of it like an emotional network. I wanted a place that you could go where you actually felt better about yourself after you left, unlike things like Instagram can be or Facebook. Not to say they're all bad, obviously, but they have contributed to a large decline in mental health and well-being. And I don't know if anyone's watched, but The Social Dilemma is a crazy documentary to watch on Netflix. And of course, there's good from these things, and I wanted to garner the good that technology can be. And so this is, if you want to learn about relationships, you want to learn about all the things, we've got all the things on there. And it's, I'm so excited. It's called Mind, M-I-N-E apostrophe D. And that was to play on the idea of your mind, your mind, it's, it's yours, it's mine. And mining, like to mine something, to mine for information, to mine for knowledge. So if you want to download that, you can just go to downloadmind.com. So, you know, D-O-W-N-L-O-A-D-M-I-N-E-D.com slash mark. That's it. Downloadmind.com slash mark. So go check it out. It's, oh, by the way, it's free for 2020. I was like, you know what? Enough fucking crazy shit has happened in 2020. Let's make this free. Let's do this up. So 
that's it. Go check it out. Download mine.com slash Mark. Go get it. It's free. I do live talks three times a week on there. And there's a number of other experts I'm sure you will love if you listen to this podcast. Okay, without further ado, I've got a returning guest, Jules Weber, who's just incredible. I can't wait for you to hear this podcast. We talk about all the things. Much love to all of you. Enjoy. I wanted to introduce you like you're Jordan coming back out of retirement, but you didn't come out of retirement, but you are like a Jordan of love. So, you know, welcome back, Jules Weber. <laughs> Woo! Thank you. <laughs> so great to have you back on. I always love our chats. I always feel like we should record our chats for podcasts anyways. So, mm-hmm. yeah. so here we are. I love it. I'm so excited. So Hi. since the last time we spoke where... You talked about your reclamation, your uprising, and you pointed out to us that Mary was certainly not a virgin. And that (laughs) (laughs) I, you know, what I love about our conversation is that it was both our previous conversation is that it was both very uh, sacred and it Mm -hmm. was very tender and kind. And there was a lot of, uh, you could just feel the grace pouring out of you with your words. And it was also so filled with truths that we pretend aren't real. And Mm -hmm. I think we should continue upon that. I agree. Yeah. And it was such, honestly, it was such a safe and open space for me at the time. And I'm, some of those things I was like so nervous to say. And now I'm like, I can't believe I, it was just, it was so good and so real for me. And, but I, I love today because I, I think the back and forth of this particular topic is just going to be juicy and yummy. Juicy and yummy. Well, so for those listening, we're going to talk about a lot of things. Uh, but in the context of there's a conversation that people keep wanting to know more about, which is the concept of like over-functioning and under-functioning and, and all of that and what that even looks like. So before we sort of get into that, I think I'd like to get into the conversation of like, when we think about even that subject, what has been coming up for you recently in your work and your world and your writing and all of that? What's been firing you up, Jules? What's been getting your Texas blood boiling, you know? (laughs) I was actually just, my blood was boiling like just a minute ago, actually. Someone asked me, it was a follower, somebody on um, my Instagram. And she said, how do we know how long I should wait to text a guy who didn't text me when he said he would? And I was like, why is this even a question? Like, why are we even thinking about this? Why are we, even just as women, trying to fill in the gaps for a man's lack of integrity, for his lack of follow-through? Why are we wondering, like, where should I pick up where he left off here? And it it just, I just so clearly remember, like, my own drive to sort of be so eager to step into this over-functioning role for for men, for people to, to like infantilize them all the time and to just be like, oh, well, he's got so much going on. Like he's going through this or to excuse things instead of just going, well, does this work for me or does it not? And I I would be in this like 
extremely like early anxiously attached place, you know, with men just wanting to, it's like a way to feel secure. Um, and so I just get the, the blood boils when I'm like, <laughs> why does patriarchy do this to us? You know, cause it's not even just women. It's men too, that don't feel like they can trust themselves the way that they feel. They don't feel like they can trust what they want. And we're trying to do relationship in that space with neither of us feeling safe, neither of us trusting ourselves. And the only way we know to feel safe is with this like over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic. Amen. You know, the, I think of that, that the, the very evidence that he's not messaging, that when he said he was going to is actually evidence that he's not great partnership material, potentially. Mm -hmm. And I, I, you know, it's not that we always have to write off people because some people have never been held accountable, you know? So for the, sometimes that behavior can be a test to see, will you hold me accountable? Now in the early dating phase, I don't think anyone wants to be tested like that. They're like, go test someone else there, buddy. Grow up, go grow up somewhere else. I've raised, I've raised enough children here. I mean, is it even worth my time to like call you out to do that work when, you know, we've been texting for who knows how long, a couple of weeks. I don't even know. I didn't know the context of this particular thing, but yeah, it's like at a certain point, it's really not even worth it. I always find if you're making, if you're making excuses for people who don't even make them for themselves, that's a good sign you're over-functioning, you know, mm -hmm. where we're like, yeah, but you know what? It's Tuesday and Tuesdays, that's right before hump day. So I bet Tuesdays are overloaded. Lots of UPS packages get delivered on Tuesdays. <laughs> so I bet they're just opening their boxes and they haven't had time to text back. Like we come up with the most bizarre yeah. reasons to justify. And it's, it's like, even, even if there's a good reason, like his mom died, right? That's a pretty like, good one. Yeah. That's a good reason, right? It's, it doesn't even matter because you're still, it's, it's still clear that you're not a, the priority, whatever the reasons are, and not not being a high enough priority for someone to text me or to like mention later, hey, this thing happened, my mom or whatever. It, that, that's just not what I'm looking for, you know. You like you do you boo, like live your life. You've got your reasons. Awesome. Like I also still get to have my priorities for myself. Yeah. And it shows you that way of being like, do you want to be in a relationship with someone whose way of being is not even to prioritize the person that they're trying to get to know? Now, of course, like you're a couple of weeks in and, you know, they have a message back that day and their mom passed away and you might check in on them a couple of days later and they say, sorry. And then they go back to good communication. They go back or they say, I don't have space right now. I'll, you know, I'll revisit this when I do beautiful. At least it's communication. Yeah. Yeah. And does that communication work for you? Like you always get to ask that question. Does this work for me? Like, is this dynamic? Like, does it serve me? Is it what I really want? And, and I feel like for me for so long, I would never even ask myself that question. Does this work for me? It mm. was always, how do I work for them? How do I make this work with them? It was like, over attaching my needs and, and creating these expectations and over attaching that to this one person, mm. as opposed to like, oh yeah, I actually have needs that are way bigger than what any one person can meet. And they can be met in an abundance of ways. And there are an abundance of good people in this world, but I would like attach all of that to this one person and fixate on them as like the source 
And I think that's where we get this like need to, to perform and create a space where, where we can be valuable to somebody by making them need us. We won't be abandoned because at the end of the day, and I had to answer this question for myself and I'm sure we'll talk about it, but just when I'm not over-functioning, like what's really left for someone to love? Mm. What do I bring? What how, What's my value? Yeah. yeah. And how do I even know how to just be if I'm not constantly in the anxiety and the tension of trying to find a secure space for myself with someone because I never feel security. You know, it's like, we just know the roller coaster, like the high of feeling validated for a second by somebody and then the low of feeling abandoned. And we just go through these highs and lows. Right. And I think over-functioning kind of keeps us stuck in that cycle that like, I'll just save you. I'll just, I'll just be there for you. I'll like find my role in your life as like almost more of a mothering figure than a lover, a partner, an equal. Yeah. And then it you end up in the state of just consistent abandonment because you're always abandoned from your presence with yourself. And so it's like, yes, you're creating value so you won't be left, but no one's ever with you, including yourself, which is kind of fascinating because, you know, as you said, what are you left with when you're not? And mm-hmm. I think, well, when you're not, then all of a sudden you have this space that you're in where you're like, what happens if someone loves me? What happens if someone functions regularly for me? It's an interesting conundrum because we source our worth from the overfunctioning. Mm-hmm. And so if we stop doing it and then we're like, I date Peter Pan's or whatever the term we have that we use for underfunctioners, mm-hmm. which is derogatory in a lot of ways, but we forget yeah. the responsibility that we keep choosing them and that we choose them because they satisfy the role we've played and learned to play. So it's an interesting paradox. Yeah. I hate this, but I keep choosing it. God. I know. And if you think about it too, it's also like, it's pretty shadowy. It's, you know, like the shadow of that is like, I'm actually really just controlling you and manipulating you and oppressing you too. I'm not actually really loving anyone here, including myself. Like there's a side of that, that we don't like to see in ourselves. Oh my God. Certainly like that's the that's the hardest thing for me, even as I go back and I look at my marriage and really try to own my role in the breakdown of it, my total unwillingness to really examine my shadow, the, you know, the shadowy side of my overfunctioning, And cause we can be like, oh, well, I'm just, I'm such a victim. Like everyone uses me every, like I never give to myself. Like, it's like, we are, we are conditioned to even see like a virtue there. Like, oh, she just never thought of herself. God you know? bless her. Yeah, oh, just God bless that <laughs> And me too. And like, and that was that was me. Like I, you know, spent years in the evangelical church, like doing all kinds of free <laughs> work for people. And uh-huh. um, you know, and I didn't I didn't get paid for any of that. I it, it just was I found value in myself in this like high morality of it. But geez, it was, it was, I was also like manipulative with it. Like over, do not, do not be mistaken here. Like over-functioning is a tool for manipulation. Totally. It's exactly that. Yeah. And so it's like, we're not actually like better than the person that's under-functioning, you know, but 
but if we can like come at it from a, a lens of just like, oh, like this is, yeah, this dynamic's really not working for me. And I can own how I've not only been hurt, but I'm hurting somebody here. Like it's not actually loving to keep them small so that I can be needed. And I have a deep fear of letting people go. Wow. Like I, I think that's like when I, when I got divorced, I think one of the most profound moments of that was both of us sitting there and thinking like, there are no more choices of love to make toward each other other than letting each other go. Mm. Like, you know, like I, I said, like before God, before our family, that I would love you for the rest of my life. And I think that we're doing that. That's still true. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. an interesting irony yeah. that we think the the container changing means the love's over, but that's not true. The love's still there. And that's what sources are are over-functioning or under-functioning is we, we try to keep the container alive. But the container itself cannot survive in those types of dynamics, not authentically, because the container's not whole, healthy, and nurturing. It's actually yeah. feeding our shadow. And I think of the, and it's, you know, you, you're not going to love yourself when you're being manipulative. You know, we're not going to love ourselves when we're sourcing our safety from over-functioning, from being needed rather than sourcing it from ourselves first and then creating a container where two people are doing that. I, I saw a meme the other day where it had uh, like unhealthy relationship, like, I don't know, two circles apart or something. But the the whole, the worst part of it is it had a healthy relationship and it was one circle with two people enmeshed, overlapped, probably humping, whatever. But they were all, <laughs> they were together. And I was like... Oh, you know, a healthy relationship is really three circles. I'm not being polyamorous here, but I mean like (laughs) one one person, another person, and then the a circle that actually does both contain the people and not contain them in that your individuality is still maintained, your your individual desires, dreams, all those things. But the container of the relationship has space for all of those things. You don't lose yourself within it. The circle doesn't become the relationship. They're still distinct. And I think that's something we're all trying to learn, you know, how to do. Because when you were sharing about your marriage of like we, like the next loving choice is to part. And that is the same in my past relationship too. It was like, we've done everything. Like we've done everything to figure this out. And I think this fracture, whatever it may bring is required. Like we know it's required because we've done all the other things. And that's when other, that's when so much more of us is born in that initiatory choice. It's such an initiatory process to say, I'm willing Mm -hmm. to let this go and love you. Oh God, that, that like challenges every framework of everything we've been taught. What is your personal experience with overfunctioning? How are we defining that, by the way, for people that are like, what's overfunctioning or that's a new concept? Well, I think if they think about it in the concept of codependency, it's the person who is doing all the things. Like we, an overfunctioner dates addicts. An overfunctioner can be subtle, though. It can be that you do everything for everyone or in your relationships. I, I remember in uh, Harriet Lerner's book, she talks about how the one partner usually female, 
uh, books all the appointments, does all the things. And uh, even the in-laws are coming to visit her in-laws and she's scheduling the stuff. And if she doesn't do it, the world falls apart. Like nothing mm-hmm. happens. No vacation gets booked. No, nothing gets booked. While mm-hmm. the partner functions, goes to work, let's say, in that mm-hmm. sort of structure and comes home and isn't showing up at home. They're under-functioning. And yeah. so it leaves space for this other person who's a superhero, by the way, right? Mm-hmm. That's that righteous trap that that can be. And so I think the, how would you define it? Underfunctioners usually have some sort of like need, like mm-hmm. they, they leave space for other people to show up for them. And so in a way, they're often addicted to the, addicted is the wrong word, but committed or engulfed in the idea of their own brokenness or the idea of their own um, inability to do things. And that is how they got connection with the parent, probably. What would you say? Yeah, I, I think that the overfunctioner identifies with saving people. The underfunctioner identifies with creating messes for people to clean up. If I was going like to way oversimplify things, I what I have found is that both of those things actually kind of exist in me. Like, do you think it's really so black and white that everyone's just one or the other and overfunctioners always attract underfunction? Because I have found actually like it can kind of exist in, in different ways in the same relationship almost. Like um, I felt like in many ways, my husband and I were both overfunctioning with each other. And there were some ways where I sort of felt like underdeveloped in my own capabilities with myself where he picked up the slack and other ways where he was underdeveloped and I picked up the slack and we kind of just like resented each other so powerfully and we're very like underappreciative and entitled and missing each other because and I and I think like patriarchal gender roles really placed us there which I think are like pretty pronounced in the religious tradition that he kind of grew up in and that we met in which was this, like, he's really the earner. I don't have the, the capacity to develop that for mm-hmm. myself, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and so I found my sense of of purpose and, and really that, like, masculine drive in, like, volunteer work. And I remember being at church and someone, and, you know, wanting to sort of, like, do this, like, staff role where I would, would get paid. And someone <laughs> literally said to me, why do you want to get paid when your husband makes so much money. <laughs> Why you, yeah. Why would you want to source your own safety and freedom? That's exactly. And so I felt like this sort of like under functioner in my own provision for myself, which ended up being so overwhelming for him. Like it was like, okay, all the burden to provide and to create retirement and futures and college funds for the kids. Like it was all on him. And I I felt very like underdeveloped and childish in that sense after, you know, we had, we had like exited that space and I found out that my self-belief was like so low there. And to be honest, it was one of my main fears, you know, when we split up and we got divorced, it was, I'm going to now be holding myself responsible for creating the life that I've had previous to this all for me without his help. Right. Oh my gosh. Like the day that you realize, the day that you realize you're, you're in a relationship just because you're afraid to leave it Mm. is so humble. Like I remember saying to myself, like, that's really not a good enough reason 
that's really not a good enough reason to be here. Like it, I felt, I felt the shadow side of that so much of that under functioning that like, Oh, I really just objectify people and you do it both ways, right? Mm-hmm. Like over-functioning, under-functioning. But then there was this over-functioning dynamic for me, right? Like, oh, he had, he had like one of those like domestic goddess moms, like keeps everything immaculate, ran everybody's life, like was a stay-at-home mom his whole life. And um, she I an remember- Was she an over-functioner? <laughs> You'd have to ask her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, she but, might be listening to this. You were not. You were a goddess. <laughs> You're a goddess, a godlike goddess. But I bet, but I mean for her and you and still today, I mean, that really feels like her calling in life, you know? And so sure. we're not yeah. we're not even like negating the behavior itself and calling that over functioning. It's really like what's the motivation here? Mm-hmm. But because I mean she shows up as like the most wonderful grandmother to my kids. I love that's them. amazing. Yeah. Um, sorry, but grandma. I, remember... I, almost, I almost threw grandma under the bus. <laughs> yeah. But I remember trying to be her mm. my whole marriage and struggling to feel seen and appreciated doing things that, you know, he, he took for granted from her growing up. How could you not when you grow up with this from the time that you're a baby, you know? And so I would like, I would work hard to take care of our life and to do things and then constantly feel like I was falling short. So I would go and I would find all of this volunteer based sense of purpose elsewhere. And that was really where my over-functioning just blossomed. (laughs) That's where you could go to thrive in your your work. (laughs) Yes. Because as hard as I tried to do all of that at home, I just couldn't feel appreciated or seen there. And then I also didn't have like my own sense of like purpose just with like a job or something, you know, like I was like, I need to be this like great wife, this domestic goddess woman that I don't know how to be, you know, my mom was Mm -hmm. not, didn't care to be that growing up. She had the job and a career and like lots of things taking her places. And, but it just felt like morally virtuous to me or something, you know? And so I really just found so much safety and so much security and and really like belonging in people from this organization, like meeting me. In the, in the church, you mean? Yeah. And like that's in the, this, it just filled me up with self-worth every day and not like the sustainable kind, (laughs) (laughs) but with some kind of a sense of like significance, you know, needing of being needed of, of knowing that you're filling it. It's interesting when you think about the pathology of these types of things, because you think of like what originated likely as just roles that were determined based on our physical abilities, you know, something like that. And again, I'm sure there's lots of feedback on what I'm saying, but just allow me some grace here, which is like that men went out and hunted women, you know, had the baby on their hip and picked berries and they were really in charge of a lot of foraging. These are all obviously theoretical ideas. Evolutionary biology and psychology are in some ways theoretical and the, so those roles really came from a, like, this is what is best for our species. But it got to a place where the provider role, the money earning role actually also imprisoned the female partner yeah. so that they 
couldn't leave for another male for whatever that might look like. And I know it's postulated that that is that monogamy in some ways was born during the agricultural revolution because tribes no longer moved around. And so you stayed in one place. If you stayed in one place, you certainly wanted your partner to stay with you. And if you're getting resources, you don't want to give those resources to some other dude's kid. So that you know, mm-hmm. these are all the ideas of why maybe monogamy was born. Yeah. And marriage itself, like the, even just the institution of marriage was created because keeping track of your property meant making your woman into your property. Right. And, and getting more in-laws to maintain more safety. Yeah. yeah. But, you know, it's, that's the thing is most people think that marriage was created for love. It was not actually <laughs> created for love. It was created for economic reasons mm-hmm. and for keeping, keeping, the socioeconomic statuses and structures the way they were. You didn't, you know, marry someone, you know, that's, I know Stephanie Kuntz was on the podcast and she talked about how when you started to own land, you could then, what happened is people started owning people. And so before, when you were all in egalitarian society, you married other people in other tribes or within your own. But, and if you married someone from another tribe, you had more safety, you shared more resources. But as soon as you owned land, people could work on the land. You then, if you're a landowner, didn't want your kid marrying someone who worked on the land to keep the socioeconomic structure and you know then is born all of this mess that we're trying to relate through and you know i i remember i I love harriet lerner's work in this avenue where she talks about like what you were saying before of like if you're not if you don't feel free that you can leave the relationship because you can't take care of yourself then you'll never feel free to be yourself in the relationship and i think that's such a fascinating perspective because there's some very real um, experiences for people where they do depend on their partner in a lot of ways they don't have the ability to take care of themselves so they tolerate and or don't express what they actually need because they've watched historically that that's not been met or been appreciated and then watched their parents suffer when the relationship ended or because they shared a need or a want you know what I mean mm-hmm. Yeah, totally. And I, I even remember just, um, I don't know if this is a totally separate topic now that I don't know why this came to me while you were saying that, but I remember growing up and seeing, you know, how hard my mom worked and that she had this career she was so dedicated to and really just missing her so much, like wanting to feel my mom's presence. And as I grew up, I remember attributing my sense of loneliness and abandonment to her career. Mm. When really, I think she just didn't know how to be emotionally available for me, you know, because I felt that even when she was home for a whole host of reasons that are not her fault in any way. It's not like anyone's training us how to be emotionally present and available with our kids, you know, particularly in her generation. But but I think pa- patriarchy has in in that narrative that was so easily picked up for me has found a way even to shame women for having their own sense of financial independence and career and all of that in a way that even I did myself. And so I remember responding to that narrative that I believed was the reason I felt so abandoned with needing to be this like, you know, quote, domestic goddess woman. And it fed into this, this idea of the over-functioning of like, I have to be everyone's sense of nurturing presence. I have to be that safe place for people. I have to be the reason nobody feels abandoned. And that was really the only way that I felt any sense of security in life was when I saw myself as 
that significant to people. Like literally you will not feel abandoned because I am here. Like I have to make myself completely indispensable to you emotionally. And obviously that just created so many intensely codependent dynamics around me. And when that breaks, well, first of all, there's a lot of shame and baggage around the idea of codependency in the church. But when that came up between me and my friends, just the whole thing broke down. I mean, it was like overnight. And the whole time I had been telling myself that it was like, love and we all really loved and i think on some level we did you know yeah it comes from a good place yeah but it was really built on like these shifting sands of like beliefs and roles that are not what lasting relationships are built on Mm -hmm. at all and so in a way i had like just embraced patriarchy with like every part of me thinking that it was going to solve the horrible relationship I had with my shame, like my shame problem. And, and I think that's, that is like the core of patriarchy is like, we're all like coping with our shame with it. The shame of the structure you mean, or the shame of it's, uh, it's invitation for both sides to self-abandon or what do you mean? The shame of power. I think the shame that starts when you're really little, that first time that your parents sent you the message that they were not going to hold space for your emotions and you felt like you were too much. Mm. And that abandoning of your truth of how you felt first started. And so I think when patriarchy essentially, you know, it overvalues the masculine and then it insists that the masculine only allowed to be exercised by men. Right. So they have like a, this, like a monopoly on like a monopoly. That doesn't even make sense, but like they're the, yeah, I get it. Yeah. They have the market, they have the market, they have the market cornered on that. Yeah. Yeah, I get it. But they don't, they don't get to be present with themselves and how they feel. And so like in my world, it was like, we had all these family structures and families and people and men. Like I remember sitting, sitting on the, um, on the street one day in this like, you know, upper middle-class-ish neighborhood we lived in in uh, Dallas, Texas. And going like, so many of these houses have families where like the husband, the dad is like going to work at a job he hates to make money that pays for the fancy houses and the fancy cars that they live in and the fancy schools that their kids will go to. And then women that are taking care of everything else besides that so that their kids can grow up and do the same thing and have kids who grow up and do the same thing. And I was like, are we on a merry-go-round right now? What, where does this ultimately even go? Like if we're not, if we're just like hating our nine to fives so we can live in these like pressurized roles all the time. Like I just like saw the merry-go-round for the first time and, and was like, I need to get off of this. I didn't know how, (laughs) um, I really didn't know how, cause I didn't have like a representation in my life of like any other thing. And it's so interesting. Cause now I like live in a really nice house and I pay for nice schools for my kids, <laughs> but I'm like doing it from such a different place than when my husband was having to do all of it. And he was burdened with all of that financial provision and didn't feel like he could really sit with how he really felt about that. And I didn't feel like I could really sit with how I felt about not having like the emotionally available husband I really wanted. We were dancing around that in these roles. 
Well, it's interesting to me that it's constantly everyone is sourcing validation and significance. Yeah. And re- we've been put into a commercial wheel, really, of, of buying and seeking and anything to avoid what we actually are looking for, which is presence and community. You know, it's so like what we left to create all of the things we've created as a species, we are ultimately coming back to, which is we left community, we left communal spaces, we left the sacredness of of real family, not contrived family, not family that's based on what do we own and all this bullshit. Mm -hmm. And then you look at Because, you know, I remember growing up, I grew up, I would say, more like lower class. um, And we maybe moved up a couple notches by a couple. I mean, we like inch towards middle class. (laughs) I remember the families that I grew up with. I grew up with lots of immigrant families Mm -hmm. and they had so much love. Like they didn't have a lot of stuff. And my mom is an immigrant. So I say immigrant families, including our family was an immigrant family too. And There was so much love there. And then, you know, as I went to school and I had friends whose parents uh, made lots of money and their, let's say their father worked really long hours, they were so desperate for connection with their fathers. And, you know, it's where does it stop? Well, it stops when all of us today are, you know, have you watched Social Dilemma, the documentary on Netflix? I watched it two days ago. Right. Like, what does that show us that like the very same thing that we keep seeking, which is validation? We were one line. I mean, there were many lines in that documentary. Mm -hmm. If you're listening to this, it's about social media and its effect basically on our mental health, our emotional well-being. It said we were not biologically made to deal with the thoughts of 10,000 people about us. And I was like, that's so true. And I was in high school. We didn't have social media. We didn't even have cell phones. That's how old I am. And they, we used to, back in my day, when I used to walk <laughs> up both ways, uh, but we were always present with each other for the most part, unless you had homework or something, because you didn't have a phone. And if like four people didn't like you, there was only four people. They didn't then post a statement about you. And then 4,000 people were like, yeah, your hairline's receding. I'm like, thanks. I know, you know, like that, that type of collective, you know, uh, bullying wasn't available. And I, I think we're in a place where everything is fracturing mm-hmm. or, or we're deepening. Like there's no choice, which I think is reflective of our relationships. They're either, we're all learning how to relate better. We're all learning that patriarchy, that the religions we were given, that all these different things mm-hmm. are using us as a commodity. Mm. Yeah. To what? What to like give really wealthy people safety and stability? Like that's essentially what's occurring. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, because we are the commodity. And there was another brilliant line in that documentary that it just said we aren't supposed to feel like I can't, I'm not going to say this exactly right, but it's like at any moment, our sense of social belonging is completely at stake. Like with every like, with every post where we're judging if we have enough likes, like, and so you, you see this like really codependent dynamic with social media that so many of us are in and, and we're so lonely and, and we're so stressed. 
like we're stressed in this dynamic. And I, and I remember like feeling like I actually wasn't on social media. Most of my twenties, I wasn't on social media till like four years ago, which is well done. You weren't even on like a church app. Was there a church app? Like go God or something. That's a great name for an app. Go God. (laughs) Just want to put that out there. Didn't you? I did. I did. It's not called the go God, but it's (laughs) it's called mine. Um, I know. I love it. I think it's because I felt because I was on Facebook for just like a couple of years. I think social media really came around when I was like 17 or 18. 2007 ish. Yeah. 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 About when I was graduating high school and I used it for like the first two years of college and then got rid of it. But it was this, this tension, this like sickness surrounding it. Um, this like space where I couldn't just sit here. I had to like be on it that we all feel. And so I got rid of it. What I think I, I didn't notice at the time was that I just transferred that dynamic onto other places in life. And I remember like feeling like when I, when I left the church feeling so sick and even as like my beliefs were changing, feeling terrified to say them out loud and, and losing my sense of belonging, like completely Uh. losing it. I remember a friend of mine who God, she was just my saving grace at the time. She had much more appropriate boundaries with the church than I did. But she was like, she just said, well, be gentle with yourself right now. Like just kind of reminded me like you haven't actually done anything wrong here. You know, things are a mess, but there's not like, you're like really being hard on yourself. And I had never, not once in my life, been told to be gentle with myself. Mm. That had never even occurred to me. Had it been modeled for you? No, 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 no. And I don't, I don't think that anyone intended that, but man, I picked up that shame voice, like so early that was where I was like, okay, I can get out of that. If I just keep saving people from their own fear of abandonment, if I just make myself need it, I've had to question or just keep in check, like my own motivations as a coach, even because I give people a sense of like, I create a safe container of intimacy for them so that they can feel safe to be themselves. And that can work on their nervous system and they can show up more authentically in their relationships and just be happier people. I love doing that. (laughs) Like, it would be so easy to have no boundaries around my work just because of the way that I'm wired. Right. Cause this, this like codependent dynamic or this anxious tendency in me, like it hasn't disappeared. I'm just better at parenting that part of myself. I mean, amen. I know most people go, well, I'm not healed because I still have that trigger. I'm like, you're going to keep the trigger. You're just going to change the response, you know, and the fact that you're present to, Cause you know, it's like, we seek to save people from feelings we don't know how to sit in. So, you know, you're like saving people from abandonment to, and you know, as uh, Hey, hand up over here too. Yeah. Recovering space too of, of being like, okay, what do I find in there? You know, it's like, yeah. I don't want them to feel it cause I don't want to go there. So my distraction is to save others. And it's so easy it can become our work, you know, and I'd say most healthcare practitioners, health providers, providers, the word essentially is like, is born from over-functioning and can come to a really healthy place because what was your survival strategy becomes your superpower when garnered, when loved, when nurtured. And then it comes from not a place of conditions of needs. It comes from a place of giving. And that's such a different energetic, you know? 
For sure. I think that, and I want to talk more about that, like the positive side of that energetic too. Cause, cause I think very much this, the like negative side of that is like needing people to stay small in order to be loved by you. It makes it hard to like be for other people and to really celebrate them. Cause you're like, they're not going to need me anymore. You know, yeah, they're going to lose their need for me. I'm going to lose my sense of significance in their life. And this like story, you and I talked about this several months ago, but you know, at one point in my life, I was involved with this man that was, um, he was like separated from their wife. They weren't living together and he wasn't really being honest with me or with her about what he was doing in terms of dating and seeing other women. You know, she was very much under the impression that they were like working on things, even though they were separated and he was, you know, gone and just not really being clear about that with her. And so I was involved with this man and I, I was like, I felt so significant to him because he was like in pain and he shared that with me and he felt like he could, but I couldn't see or even question like, why is this taking up so much of my life? Why am I neglecting so much of, of my life and of myself? And what do I do with this feeling of unease that he's not really telling me the whole story? Like, why is it that I'm like sharing all about him to people that I know, but I have this feeling that like, there's not a single person in his life that knows who I am. Mm, mm. Like, it was just things like, you know, like that. And but the feeling of significance was like crack. Like it's, it, it's like you will put your blinders on and not see anything else besides, besides that person meeting you. And you'll construct all of these narratives and all of these stories that serve it. Like, no, I'm special to him. No, he needs me. He's going through a lot. Mm. You infantilize grown men. That are that can fully take care of themselves are so so they're supposed to be able to, and I did that, and oh my god, like I got that sickening feeling again when like the truth of his life came to the surface, and I just all I could do was shame myself at, at that point. I was like, oh my gosh, like I felt terrible for his wife. I felt I felt horrible about myself, horrible that I had missed things, but I think I really needed that experience as painful as, I mean, it was the most sick I've ever felt. I think I needed that so I could get to a point where I could just choose, like, I'm not going to do this to myself anymore. Like, I'm just not going to. And I remember for a time feeling like pretty isolated and just saying no to every relationship, every interaction that stirred up that anxious attachment, that neediness, that codependency in me, just because I needed to see that I could. Mm. Yeah, I know that feeling of of saying no to the drug. You know, it's like I remember when I was in my more uh, short-term relationship phase, I remember meeting this woman when I was on vacation and I had her number. She lived in the same city. And I remember like sitting, looking at my phone, like I want a relationship. I know that I have to live in accordance to that. And I would be being out of integrity with my truest intention. And I remember it being like, honestly, it was like not eating 
uh, dry mango. Like it was hard. I was like, and that stuff's good. Eat that this afternoon. Right. Well, you don't have to like, quit that. That's I can make it. <laughs> right. And I remember though it being. I used to chew tobacco when I was young. You'll know as a Texan, you know what chewing tobacco is like. And, and not that you've done it, but I'm sure you know lots of people do mm-hmm. and or have. And I remember when I quit that, it actually took, I wanted to quit it because it was so out of integrity with how I lived my life. Like everything was about health and fitness and I was playing soccer. And I remember when I quit that, it was because I was in the hospital and I was almost I had gotten an embolism in my lung when I broke my leg and they told me that I might die. And I remember being in the hallway of the hospital being like, I can't believe I'm doing something that speeds up my mortality. Like that's how little grace, that's how little reverence I have for life. And, and I remember in that moment making a promise that I would quit in that moment if I made it through what I was going through. And I did never touched it again. That was actually the same level. I had to dig that deep within myself of like what I want and who I want to be is actually being determined in this moment. Like, do I actually want what I say I want? Of course, the child in me was like, you want to make out, <laughs> you know, like, I know what you want. Let's go do it. You know, but, but I had to not get that need for affirmation and connection met so I could sit in the space of what integrity feels like, uh, which also when I did that, I also felt the cascade of all the moments that I hadn't made that choice. So then that sort of shame train hits you of like all the available times you could have done this before, but you didn't. And how self-abandoning it is to put our bodies in places um, that aren't safe, that aren't in integrity. And um, as a male, I think, because a lot of male status is celebrated upon that of, of somehow being disassociated from being intimate, which what an awful message we send upon our own gender that it's actually a sign of masculinity to be disassociated and be able to just be intimate, which is not shaming casual intimacy, but to say like, if you can't do it sober and your heart can't be there when it's happening, should you be doing it? I mean, in my opinion, no, but yeah. Yeah. Hmm. To your, your point, your thought on integrity. Like, I, I think I, I came to a point where I learned that without patriarchal religious notions of morality to guide me, to protect me from my shame, which was so, so very centered around my sexuality and Tell me about those though first. What do you mean by that? What were these notions? You know, I have this like this memory from I think I was 19 or so. I was in college and it's like early in college and I had like met this guy who I just remember seeing as this like really popular super accomplished, very handsome like just at the top of the privilege pile, you know, (laughs) privilege pile. I've never heard that. Yeah. And, and like, and from my vantage point of, you know, like wanting to be saved or rescued from myself, from all of this inner abandonment that I felt, I remember just seeing him as like such a catch. Uh, We like knew 
we had some mutual friends kind of knew of each other, but didn't really know each other. And we were out dancing with friends one night and I met him like that night and went home with him. And, um, that's not very evangelical of you. (laughs) Well, I wasn't, I wasn't evangelical yet. Oh, Uh, certainly. I certainly shamed myself for it enough that I became evangelical. after that. <laughs> um, but then that next morning leaving his house and walking to my car by myself. And he just like, he didn't even like bother getting out of his bed. I felt just so empty going home. And, and I look back on that and I'm just like, I should have been able to feel so at home in myself making a, whatever choice I want to. And, and I think for me, all of that, that sexual shame, like my sexuality really just represented like an honest, the most honest and real expression of like, of just who I really am and how I long to be seen. I think when you shame women from that piece of themselves and you make them think that their bodies looking a certain way are going to be how they feel significant and you distract them from what it is that they think and how they want to provide for themselves and create independence and, and live empowered and really be able to offer their nurturing as a gift and not as an object to be used. Like when you distract them from all of that, I mean, for me, like I just made my life smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller and I, I diminished myself to all the way down to, to just rock bottom, you know, to where I, I had this relationship with this man I just mentioned and where I overlooked everything because I just did not see any part of myself as worthy of being looked upon by someone that really loved me. And I needed to believe that if somebody needed me, they would love me. And so spending years just like saying no, just because I could, you know, and understanding that, like I was saying before, in the absence of all of this religious patriarchal moral code to allow me to sidestep my sexual shame, Mm. in the absence of all of that code. And I remember being like, well, if I don't care about the Bible anymore, like what's going to tell me what's right and wrong, you know, finding my integrity and going, Oh, I can actually just make choices that are in line with the goodness of who I am. Yes. And I think every day I'm just going to learn a little bit more about what that means for me. I don't think I have really like a full picture of it. I'm so stuck in so many illusions and I I don't think it would be gentle or kind to just peel back all the illusions and suddenly be enlightened. I don't know if that's uh, called it. I think that's the dark night of the soul. Yeah. Many, many, many times. That is, yeah, exactly right. Um, which is, yeah, certainly that was my dark night of the soul. Then, and it was, and you know what that season can feel like. It's just like the, this chaos and this hurricane and nothing makes sense, but your integrity is like this thread that guides you. There's a poem that talks about the thread. Oh, I wish I could remember it right now. I think you would love it so much. But that was it. Like, it's really your own, your integrity is your only guide. When you're deprogramming all of this stuff. And I think it, it, there's a surrender in acknowledging that if I'm making decisions that are in line with the goodness of who I am, then that means these decisions are inevitably going to be good for other people. 
no matter mm. how bad they get at me, no matter how much they push back, no matter if they leave or stay. Amen. Actually doing the most loving thing possible for them by doing that for myself. Amen. That's so true. And I'm not saying amen because of all the Christian references. (laughs) (laughs) It's colloquial. Uh, But that's beautiful because I, you know, I think about how when we put ourselves, like we so associate love and connection with pain and hurt and abandonment and rejection often sourced from our childhood that we then seek connection, like just connection, whether it be intimate or not. But we know we don't really learn how to actually get the deepest thing we actually are looking for, which is safety and security. You know, and I think that's such a, I mean, gosh, I would have never, no one ever taught me that. You know, no one ever teaches us that the reason you're having uh, short-term relationships or over-functioning or under-functioning is always just a way of preventing getting hurt yeah. and, and maintaining the safety of belonging. And I think because we're all collectively participating in this game till we're not, which if you're listening to this, you're probably not. You're in the active form of, of wanting to step out of the system. Mm-hmm. But like 99%, that might be dramatic. No, probably not. Of relationships are codependent in in a lot of ways. And I say that with my hand up as a recovering codependent mm-hmm. is that when, as as you indicated, when you left the church and you said you had that deep amount of pain and fear of uh, not having belonging, mm-hmm. when you step out of how the systems work, whatever that might mean, and I mean any system, but yeah. we can stay relational, Yeah, you are choosing yourself at the cost of belonging, perceived mm-hmm. belonging, but belonging that's only based on false pretense. And so yeah. it's not actually authentic. So you're not actually getting the connection and intimacy your soul craves. And now when you fracture that and you're like, listen, we know we're, you know, when you leave systems that are full of shit mm-hmm. and you're like, uh, we all know that you're actually lying, you're lying. Like I find if I'm picking on, religion which i do like to do (laughs) there is so many there's so much bullshit of like Mm -hmm. we all believe this but then what do they choose where does their money go what do they Mm -hmm. vote for all that kind of stuff which is in such you know in such conflict with the true teachings of all prophets in their space christ Mm -hmm. so much against all of the teachings and that's when you finally call out that truth, which I think is so fascinating is about our societies, is they are built around ignoring truth. So we're all traumatized because we're ignoring the truth. And yeah. then we need to get wasted, buy more bullshit, be over-functioning, be under-functioning. If we all just paid attention to the truth that we're hurting our planet, that we're commoditizing everything, including ourselves, that uh, social media is can be really beautiful and can be incredibly destructive to our self-worth, especially for young minds, then maybe we can deal with what the fuck is happening. You know? I don't for know. sure. <laughs> for sure. Um, I got mad. Where do we go after that? <laughs> I don't know. I love your fire. I love your fire. And I love how authentic it feels too. Like I even remember 
I think as an overfunctioner too, you actually don't feel like you can give voice to your anger a lot of the times because you're so busy protecting your ability to feel significant and safe and not be too much for people and be their answer and be their savior. But you build up all of this resentment toward them because you're neglecting yourself. And I remember like every few years in my, just in my marriage, I would just fly into this rage and because I felt so unseen. And I, and I think someone said to me once, um, a mentor of mine, she was like, rage is a call to justice. Like from whatever place in you feels unseen, it's saying like, pay attention to me. Yes. What, what was that? Yes. I was giving it. Oh. Yeah. Was like, Hell yeah. Amen. Hallelujah. Yeah. Yeah. And another person said to me once about, I think my therapist said this to me and I just, I've loved this, this idea about anger itself that it's actually just there to give you the energy you need to honor your boundaries. Like once it's, once you've done that, it's like served its purpose. And so even just have like now having individuated to the level that I have, I actually don't feel a need any longer to take my anger or my rage out on people. Beautiful. I'm like, oh, there's a capacity actually, because it's really just for me. It's actually just for me. Like, and I can let people see it for sure. Sometimes part of honoring your boundaries is like sending a very loud and clear message to somebody, you know, it's like, there's some angry women in the world right now that I could not respect or love more for sharing their anger with the world, using their voices the way that they are. Right. Um, because at the core and the essence of that, they're using that energy to defend a femininity that's been used and abused and objectified in the way much the same way that I've done that with myself. And I feel like so much of my work with women is women is rooted in that same purpose. You know, when I'm like, like I was saying, keeping that codependent motivation, like in check, what I really want is to like, is for other women to experience the same freedom that I have. I used, I didn't, there was one point in my life. I did not think it was possible to experience my dating life without shame to end every experience in shame. Did you feel that same thing? Yeah. I mean, I had it, especially if I wasn't interested in someone, for example, like I had guilt that I was going to hurt them or when really I was just taking responsibility for their feelings, you know, but I had Mm -hmm. that. I I certainly had that. I definitely had it with anything related to sexuality, like to, to intimacy that Mm -hmm. was out of like the container of a committed relationship. And You know, it, because I was taught that sex and arousal was associated with demonic, you know, evil slash mm-hmm. uh, not clean, not, you know, I wasn't part of a purity movement, thank God. But, <laughs> thank I mean, God. <laughs> right. Thank, thank the Lord. But I really, you know, it's it's interesting how, you know, I've said this before, that the very thing that creates us is the thing we shame most. I mean, we're all yeah. the birth of at least one orgasm, you know, and we should uh, for sure. oh, ideally do. But, you know, ideally do. it can't. <laughs> yeah. And, and honestly, like over, like I was saying earlier, like, you know, I didn't feel like my husband was really emotionally available. Neither was I. Like, yeah. I just want to be super clear about that in the ways that we really needed. and. And I think over-functioning is sort of a way to keep ourselves unavailable for the love that we say we crave so deeply. Because like I was saying earlier, it's like 
well, what's going to be left if I'm not doing that, if I don't have this way to manipulate somebody into needing me forever. Mm-hmm. And, but we, we really do objectify each other in that we're just using this other person as an object. But when you let it go, like when it's not there anymore and your, your stories of insecurity and even just early attachment and dating aren't running the show or your narrative that, you know, that you're never enough isn't running the show in your marriage. Like you actually get to see what the other person is experiencing in their life. Yeah. Like you can actually take in their experience and witness it and have feelings about it and toward them and have real feelings for somebody. Like what a huge difference, right? When it's like, when you're like, oh, I have these huge feelings for somebody because it's like this wounding chemistry because you found a new roller coaster to ride and the roller coaster like died when you got married right or it just ended in shame because it's like breakup after breakup after breakup because you're in this pattern but like when you the beauty of letting go of the overfunctioning and just showing up as yourself as vulnerable as that can feel is that you're actually available to the other person's experience you're not even looking at that when you're objectifying them you don't even know what it is it's like oh he hasn't um let me think of an example like like you're you're like dating somebody and you're stuck in this like anxious attachment early attachment narrative right like why hasn't he texted me soon enough or does he really like me or I don't even know if he likes me or not or um am I good enough am I doing the right things and your mind is like spinning and you're not even thinking like he might be nervous too Mm. That might've been hard for him to ask you out. That might've taken some courage. Like he might be wondering some things himself right now about how he's showing up and just the ability to like hold space for somebody else's experience and to even step out of the hamster wheel is so beautiful because then it's like, oh, I can actually just be truly curious about you as a person. I can actually know you. I can actually like... I'm just going to say this. I'm going on a date tonight with a guy that I'm having a fantastic time with. Yeah, you are. Way to go, girl. Amazing, right? And he he texted me something the other day that was just like a, a vulnerable share. And it was just, it was beautiful. It was like so lovely that he shared that with me. I felt the place in me that wanted to go, oh, he's like, he's hurting a little bit. Like, let's fix it. Let's, let's be there for him. Let's, you know, like wanting to kind of over-function in response to whatever he was saying, very absorbed in my own experience, but then was able to individuate from that because I've gotten pretty good at it and just go, Oh, like he was feeling vulnerable in that moment. Like all I really want to do is hug him. (laughs) I feel so warm inside. I feel so open. I feel so invited. Mm. And I and I have these feelings like toward him instead of like feelings that that overattach and that objectify him and that negate his experience. Mm. That's beautiful. I love that thought of like how the overfunction actually invalidates the true yeah. and intention of the other person's presence. Mm-hmm. It also puts them into a childlike state again, you know, which is mm-hmm. interesting. So it's like 
I think a lot of the times there, it's interesting because there's like a narcissism to the overfunctioning in that it's like, I'm fixed, I'm healed, I got this. They need me, they're broken. And so they stay in that cycle. And I thought like when you said, like when you pull back and you stop overfunctioning, you mm-hmm. actually allow the other person to grow up. You invite them to, and you're growing up yourself. So you're not grown up as an overfunctioner, although that's the way the righteous mind faces it. Yeah. And so both people actually learn to adult in that moment. And what a beautiful gift that is to say, I trust you enough that you can handle what you're doing. And if you need me, you'll ask for support. And how ironic ironic that that adulting is actually a restoration of your childlikeness. Right. Isn't that so? And the trusting of self, I'm enough without doing this. I'm enough with I'm, I'm enough. Fuck all this other stuff I've been doing. As soon as you start doing this dance for the applause of other people, including on social media, you, you will not be in a good place. Yeah. So in the interest of uh, people not over-functioning or under-functioning anymore, because I do find it's fascinating that probably the majority of the people listening to this are over-functioners mm-hmm. because over-functioners tend to be... Yeah, highly engaged in learning how to get better and how to help people, how to heal themselves, their relationships. And underfunctioners do usually from the loss of an overfunctioner, like an overfunctioner being like, this doesn't work for me anymore. They leave or the impact of their choices, their self-sabotage makes them Mm -hmm. turn within. Where do we go from here, right? Like where does someone go from the space of, okay, I'm interested in learning, how to take that step back. I'm interested in learning how to take that step forward. You know, letting go of the narrative that my worth lives in my performance and the other person, letting go of the narrative that they're broken and they're a project or they Mm -hmm. always, you know. So how do you lead people through that? Solve the world's problems, Jules Weber, (laughs) right now. Well, I mean, I think you know this because you're so great at teaching it as well as the, I think the over-functioner really needs to get good at the feeling of surrender. Mm, that's you know, a good word. In the process of, of boundary setting, like how much do you have to let go of in order to just be you and not try to be more than that? Mm. And where do you determine, you know, like I find what's fascinating about that, what you just said is learning where the line is, where you actually end and in, in realizing it's so much further back than you thought. I mean, that's me projecting. It's so much further back than I thought for myself, you know, and that's, it's beautiful to see as you reel yourself in that you're like, oh my God. Yeah. Big time. Like honoring your limitations. What? No. That's, that's crazy. That's, that's crazy talk. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but really, really what, what like we do in our codependency and our overfunctioning is we're just running. We're just running away from center. That's all we're doing. Mm -hmm. And so if what we're doing is running from our center, then it's because we don't know how to sit with it. I had a client the other day, just do some mirror work. And I can't kind of gave her that as an assignment. She was like, I really can't do it. It's too hard to just look in the mirror at her body. Um, Because women, like we tend to really avoid our our bodies, like looking at our bodies, because when we look at them, we have to be present to the war that's happening. The, the criticism, the hatred, the, 
the sense of betrayal we feel from our bodies, the sense of abandonment our bodies feel toward us. You've never listened to me. You haven't heard what I'm trying to say. I'm afraid that I can't please you. Like all of that, um, that, that war that happens within, within self for women is so challenging to be present to, especially when it began, when you were tiny and you were hurt or you were angry and somebody told you that you were too much and to stop feeling that way. And then when you got into early puberty, when social belonging was everything to you, somebody made you think that that was attached to your body and how it looked. Mm-hmm. And so then it's like, okay, well, I can't control anything. No one's going to be present with me. And also I'm going to get punished for having any kind of ambition or independence. The one thing I can control is my body, theoretically. And so this war with ourselves starts. And I think the overfunctioning is born out of an inability to be present with that war, in essence, to create a ceasefire and to just say, okay, like, I'm just going to sit here and witness this and, and sit with it. Even if it's just for a minute, like, can I just be with myself and not be in the running state? Like I got really good at noticing what does it feel like when I'm just running? Like, what does my body do? When do I start chasing people? When am I afraid? When do I do shit I hate? What What is it that I, I had a project. I was going to do like a huge project today. And I just felt all of this resistance about it. Like I kept putting it off and I was like, why am I really doing this? Like, this is not working in my life. And I just let it go. And I felt so much better mm-hmm. and everyone's going to be fine. But even, even just within myself, I've like, I hold myself to these unrealistic standards of performance and then I get exhausted and I feel like I'm not enough. And so I do it within myself all the time. I I didn't realize this going into this work when I was trained as a relationship coach, I thought I was going to help couples and, and I do that, but it's in a more peripheral than direct way now because of this relationship with self that, you know, is so integral to even allowing yourself to be seen by somebody. Like we say this all the time, like they don't, they don't see me. I don't feel seen. I don't feel heard. I don't feel appreciated. And I don't feel any of that with myself either. Someone can do their damnedest and I'll still be lonely. So man, like the experience of sitting with it, of surrender, of like this quality access to your feminine energy, like that part of yourself that invites you into the capacity to just be. And then we don't make these crazy decisions like you get married when you're 20 because you don't know what else to do. (laughs) And if you did that, don't worry. It's all good. I'm thinking about myself, but I'm actually like, even now in this integrated place that I'm in, I was just saying this morning to a friend at coffee, like, I actually really feel like I married the right person and I had kids with the right person. Like I'm actually very happy with that choice. I don't think that I wish I could go back and undo it because it's just integrated now. Yeah. And I I think for anyone, anyone you've chosen in the past is the right person for the lesson. I mean, you can't undo it. So you better find the grief, you better find the grace in it, you know, and it's, Mm -hmm. it's a, it's a beautiful awareness though, to have that, you know, your, everything that's gotten you to this point has been, it's been perfect. Yeah. And it's only imperfect if we haven't found the gifts in it, which is mm-hmm. not to dismiss the pain of it, of course. 
Because yeah. gifts don't always feel good. I think that's a confusion we have often. <laughs> yeah. And, not always like the ones we would have chosen. Well, and, and, you know, I don't want people to think there's not a beauty in religion. There's certainly beauty in religion. There's certainly beauty in all forms of religion. It's just when it come, when it becomes a source of our shame, then it's lost what it's meant to be, which is expansive. It's not meant to be contracting. It's meant to be expansive, you know, and we are innately, I think, uh, a virtuous uh, mor- moral species. You know, I, I think we are. In I the, love that. I think we are. I think that's a, it's yeah. a good assumption to make. I, mm-hmm. People are good generally. Yeah. You know, it's not to say there aren't bad people in the world, but people are generally good. And when they do poor things or bad behaviors, it's usually be from traumatized states, you mm-hmm. know? And so at some point we have to choose to exit the dance, which is what you've done. And I, I love it. And, and so, you know, in the honor of time and, yeah. and because we could talk for hours in the honor of time and, uh, for people to find more about you. Because if you haven't listened uh, to a previous episode that Jules and I did together, she talked all about her move towards the church, her marriage, the leaving of that. Absolutely beautiful episode. Yeah, I think Make it was sure in December that. last year. It's been a while, huh? That's right. And yeah. and so now what do you got cooking? What? Where do people find you? All that stuff. Tell me what you got cooking. Yeah. Well, I which, think is not, like... which is not a gender role reference to cooking. <laughs> I am obsessed with cooking. It's one of my favorite things, actually. (laughs) No, I engage with my community the most on my Instagram. It's jules.weber, J-U-L-E-S dot W-E-B-B-E-R. I have um, a course coming out on Monday. Monday. I think maybe that's the day. Maybe that's today if you're listening to the podcast for when it's coming out. Either today or yesterday. Either way, Jules Weber on the court. Guess what? Yeah. And the course is, it's called Flawless and Feminine. And it's all about sitting with and being present to the war within yourself and with just, you know, expanding our capacity for love so that we can expand into that with other people. And, oh, it's the best thing I've ever created in my life. It's so powerful. It's so good. Um, I'm really excited for that. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Cause you took the fire that you, that you breathe out yeah. and put it into a course for people to hear and to transform. And so, okay. So it's called flawless and feminine. And where do people yeah. find that? Well, you can just come to my Instagram and you'll, you'll find every single link that you need. It's also at JulesWeber.com. Um, the name for the course actually came out of this moment that I had where I was like sitting in my kitchen and it was right after that moment where someone told me to be gentle with myself. And I'd never considered that before. And I thought, what if I like stop thinking just for a minute that I need to be fixed? What if I just let myself believe, even if it's not true, that I'm actually already perfect and I'm flawless just the way that I am. And my body relaxed in such a tangible way in that moment that I really have never gone back to the place that I was before that. Like ever since oh. then, I have just committed myself to identifying with this maternal instinct toward myself that I have toward my kids where I'm like, you're perfect the way that you are. You don't have to change all the things that you might grow up thinking that you need to change. Like, I love you so much. I'm so all about who you are. And your only work is to unpeel the layers of illusion that stand in between you and actually being able to see your goodness. So that's where like the title of the course came from. It's just like 
can you stop seeing yourself as this like piece of work mm. just for a minute? Like the goal is not constantly improve. It's not to change yourself. It's actually just to be with yourself. And that is what really makes you a delight to other people. That's why you don't have to do anything to earn love. You extend it to other people by extending it to yourself. There you go. There, that's well, what a, note, what a note to end on. You <laughs> extend it to others by extending it to yourself. Thank you so much, Jules Weber, for being here. I always Thank love you. having you on. And I can't wait to have you on again. Everyone go check out <laughs> at Jules.Weber on Instagram. And if you want to be flawless and feminine, go grab that course. Much love. Bye. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it, or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.